0: Okay, good morning. Good Christmas morning, everyone. It is a blessing to stand in the pulpit and to share God's Word with you on a Christmas morning. I've been a lot of places all over the world, and my wife and I were reminiscing yesterday about some lonely Christmases that we spent um, in other countries and different things. And I've had the privilege of preaching on Christmas Day in the streets in Kathmandu, when we used to live in Nepal, the Nepalis like to celebrate Christmas, not so much with trees and gifts and all that, but they purposely use it as an opportunity a day to go out into the streets and to share the good news of Jesus Christ in a country that is 75% Hindu and about 24% Buddhist and less than 1% Muslim and even less than that Christian. So, They spend Christmas Day witnessing in the streets. I remember going out and we'd see little families out there just handing out tracts on street corners. I always thought there was a lot we could learn from believers in the third world. For long, we thought we just knew better than everybody else around the world because we were healthy, wealthy, and wise and comfortable here in America. And oh, God's just blessed us so we know better than everyone else. And A lot of times, it ought not be us teaching... Believers in poor third world countries, it ought to be them teaching us. But this is a gift for me today. My family and I decided this year that the we'd only give each other one gift. So there was nothing under the tree this morning. and We just decided we'd give each other the gift of time together. And it's been a blessing. We spent just the time that I've been able to spend with my family in the evenings, riding around yesterday here with my church family, those are great blessings. And I've never been able to preach from a pulpit on a Christmas morning. So I just consider this a blessing. I want to thank you for that. And um, I'm I'm blessed by my... My daughter gave me a a gift this morning. It was a double shot, or was it a triple shot? Espresso (laughs) with organic peppermint essential oil, some cocoa, And a little cream. So I have my peppermint mocha I'm I'm nursing on right here. And I'll I'll try to enjoy that. But I think where we are in Revelation this morning is, I can't think of a more appropriate passage when we reflect upon the birth of Christ. You know, there are those out there that say, you know, uh, nowhere in the Bible uh, is the birth of Christ celebrated. So why are we celebrating it? Well, the angels celebrated when Christ was uh, born. Hebrews says that. And it's recorded in the Word of God. So if it's recorded in the Word of God, Paul says it's there for our admonition and it's also there for our comfort. So I think it's a a great thing to look at everything that's recorded in the Scriptures. And uh, Christ's first and second advent aren't really separate. When the prophets spoke of Christ and His coming, the Messiah, often single passages encapsulated His entire advent, His first and His second together. And we too should do that. And as we reflect upon Christ's birth, it ought to make us hope stronger for His coming. But years ago, some years ago, I wrote a little something I thought was appropriate for this morning. Um... I love the words of old verses from old hymns that are often left out of our modern hymnals. you got to watch these hymnals. You know, sometimes they change just single words and end up removing powerful truth. Or verses are left out, verses from which we could learn something. The same is true in our modern English versions of the Bible. We're going to see that today where words and verses are left out or even changed. And some folks say, well, that's not a big deal. Some people thought it wasn't a big deal when we kicked prayer out of schools in America. Wasn't a big deal about Roe v. Wade. Wasn't a big deal when we started sending our kids to public school. What well, was a big deal. And there were those that shouted about it and warned us about it 150 years ago. Look where we are now. The reason it's not a big deal to many of us is because we only care about ourselves. And we only care <coughs> about our present generation. We don't care about our children, our grandchildren, the Lord tarries. We're selfish people. But there are some of these old verses from old hymns that are full of rich truth and rich doctrine. And all were composed within a specific historic context that we often overlook. None of the old hymns were written in a vacuum. There's an old hymn called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. It's one of my favorite old Christmas carols. And it's actually just a poem set to music that was written by a famous poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Longfellow wrote Christmas bells on Christmas Day in 1863. And it was right smack dab in the heart, the bloodiest heart of America's Civil War. It was at that time, that Christmas Day, it seemed as if the war would never end. A month earlier, his son had been severely wounded in the Battle of New Hope Church during the Mine Run campaign in Northern Virginia. This, coupled with the stalemate of conflict and the recent loss of his wife in a freak fire, a terrible accident in which she had accidentally set fire to her own dress and was engulfed in flames. That's what inspired this poem, those events. You know, his wife Fanny died the next day and he himself tried to put the fire out and in doing so, burned his face and his hands very badly. To hide his facial scars, he eventually grew that white beard that gave him the sage look for which he is often remembered Of course, you may be familiar with the hymn's opening stanza and some of what immediately follows. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. However, what is often neglected are the middle verses that speak directly of the historic context in which he wrote this poem. And the final two stanzas In which the words seem to transcend time. And are therefore all the more appropriate for us living in these troublesome times. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong that mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. The wrong will be made right, my friends. It will be made right when Jesus, the Christ, Christ is not His last name, it's His office, the Messiah, born in a manger, crucified on a cross, buried in a rich man's tomb, risen up from the grave, and ascended to the right hand of His Father, returns with His church both physically and bodily, to set up a literal, physical millennial kingdom and sit on the throne of his father David, just as the angel Gabriel promised to Mary long ago. Therefore, another verse from an old Christmas carol. Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now ye need not fear the grave. Jesus Christ was born to save. Cause you one and cause you all to gain his everlasting hall. Christ was born to save. Christ was born to save. So I hope that's a blessing to you. I like reading some old stuff sometimes, but I, I like to write stuff down. So I trust the Lord, use it. I want to get into Revelation 22 again today, and I think verse 16 is so appropriate to this day in which we remember our Lord's birth. But I didn't quite get through the Bible's last exhortation last week, so I want to look very briefly at verses 14 and 15 of the last chapter of the Bible. Remember, we're looking at last in the Bible. The last book, it's last chapter. And we're reflecting back on the Bible's first. So we started with the Bible's last exhortation. We went back and looked at its first exhortation in the spirit of the law of the first mention in Scripture. And the end of this exhortation, we got down through verses 13. The exhortation is introduced in verse 6, and the Bible's final exhortation is given in verses 7 through 15. But I want to look briefly at verses 14 and 15. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates of the city. For without, that is, without the city, the millennial New Jerusalem, the future home of the bride that we talked about in detail. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. Blessed are they that what do his commandments. Now be very careful my friends because some of these supposedly innocent no big deal modern translations of our bible in english just morally neutral works of men that just want the bible to be easier for you to understand be very careful. Because they don't say what our Bible says here. Our Bible says here, blessed are they that do His commandments. But be very careful if your Bible says, blessed are they that wash their robes. I don't know how do His commandments turns into wash their robes. I know why. It's based on some corrupt Catholic manuscripts that disagree more with each other than they do With, with the manuscripts that have been preserved and passed down and blessed by God. But think about this. If your Bible says, Blessed are they that wash their robes. I know that the ESV says that. Ask yourself, How does that make any sense? In view of what Jesus has said in Revelation already about the robes of the saints. How does it make any sense In view of what Jesus says to Laodicea, he counsels Laodicea to buy of him gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and clothe thyself with white raiment. Jesus counsels the church at Laodicea to take of him white raiment, white clothing, white robes, that they may be clean, and that the shame of their nakedness not appear. So how does that make any sense that we're blessed if we wash our robes? If Christ gives us robes of white to clothe us and hide our nakedness, why would we need to wash them? What about in Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8? Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife hath made herself ready. That's the church. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. What do you mean blessed are those that wash their robes? If I've been given clean linen, white and bright, the righteousness of of the saints, which is the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ, why in the world would I ever need to wash that robe? I think readings like this are even more ludicrous when you look at the imagery throughout the Scriptures. I think of something here in Zechariah 3 where the priest of God appears dirty and broken down. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And He answered and spake unto those that stood before Him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from Him. And unto Him He said, Behold, I have caused thy iniquity to pass from thee. Just like God did with Isaiah in chapter 6 of His book. And I will clothe thee with a the change of raiment. You see, friends, when our Lord clothes us in His righteousness, we don't need to wash those robes. If we try to wash our own robes, we'll never get them clean. It's like oil on a white sheet. It's not coming out. So how ridiculous is a reading like that? I'll tell you what it is. It's a reading that shows a subtle spirit, an unclean spirit that's got its fingers messing in God's Word and trying to confuse it. But we can trust this old English Bible. This old English Bible that was tried in the fires of persecution and the fruit of those who gave their lives for the preservation of the Word of God. We can trust it when it says blessed are those that do His commandments. Blessed are those that do His commandments. What does that mean? Blessed are those that do His commandments. Well, look at what's said right here in chapter 22 already. Verse 7, Behold, I come quickly. Verse 10, The time is at hand. So we have Jesus saying to the churches, Behold, I come quickly. The time is at hand. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the very first time Christ Jesus in His earthly public preaching ministry opened His mouth on the street and preached His very first sermon. I like reading through the Gospel of Mark. It's a very short, concise uh, uh, telling of Christ's life and ministry. And there are mileposts in the book of Mark that are short, succinct, simple statements that show us who Jesus really is and it often conflicts with what we've been thought to believe in these days of idolatry. But Jesus' very first public sermon was in Mark 1.15. And it bears quite the similarities to what Jesus is saying here in the last chapter of the book of Revelation. Mark one fifteen. I call this the first milepost in the book of Mark. That reveals very clearly who Jesus is. Mark one fifteen. Verse 14, it says, After John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, in verse 15, and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Revelation 22, Behold, I come quickly. The time is at hand. It's the same warning that Christ gave in His first sermon. But His first sermon, He follows that warning up with two simple commandments. Repent ye and believe the gospel. So when Revelation 22 from the mouth of the same one who preached that sermon in Mark is saying, Behold, I come quickly, the time is at hand, and then goes on to say, Blessed are they that do His commandments. What commandments are, is he talking about? Very simple. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Repent ye and believe the gospels. The same two commands here we need to remember. Blessed are they that do those commandments. Some religious leaders asked Jesus and John, what should we do to work the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe on Him whom God hath sent. To believe on Him whom God hath sent means to repent and believe the gospel. Blessed are they that do those commandments. Repent and believe the gospel. Why? Because those who repent and believe the gospel have claim to the tree of life. And they have access to to the new Jerusalem. You want access to the new Jerusalem? You want to eat of the tree of life, the right that Adam and Eve lost in the garden? Then repent and believe the gospel. Blessed are they that do those commandments. Not blessed are those who wash their robes. That makes no sense. If that's in your Bible, mark it out and put the true text. Blessed are those that do His commandments. Without. This verse 15 is the last of the clues We had here in Revelation about the new Jerusalem. It's a clue that the new Jerusalem isn't only in the new heavens and the new earth. It comes down during the millennial kingdom of Christ in this heaven and this earth, and then it transcends into the new heavens and the new earth. We're told here that outside that city are dogs, sorcerers, whoremongers, murderers, and idolaters, and those who love and make a lie. Guys, there won't be any of that in the new heavens and the new earth but there is here. Because this new Jerusalem is a taste of the new heavens and new earth. It's the home of the saints during the thousand year reign of Christ. And without, even when Satan is bound, even when he's bound, without there are still dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and liars. We can't blame Satan for our sin, folks. He tempts us. He tricks us. He deceives us. But we've got that wicked flesh And be very careful about blaming someone else, even the prince of the power of the air, the prince of darkness, for what is you without Christ. But for those who repent and believe the gospel and have been given white raiment, clean and white, the righteousness of the saints, which is the righteousness of God, they have access to the new Jerusalem and the holy city. But without, without, This last clue that the new Jerusalem transcends the new heavens and the new earth. What we have here is what was already stated in chapter 21 verse 27. tells us what will not come into that city. What will not come into that city is anything that defiles or works abomination or makes a lie. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Back when I preached on that some time ago... Let me see if I can find it here. Well, I had it marked and now my notes are all over the place. Here's a great truth we can see here. Just as we saw in 21 verse 27 right here in 22:15. 15. God, the maker of heaven and earth. God, the word that was made flesh and dwelt among us. He discriminates. He segregates. Nearly all government leaders and government workers in Washington today would be banned from entering this city. Most of our state governments, the overwhelming majority of Americans, and most folks in church this Christmas morning, and a whole slew of American pastors will be banned from entering this city. Because they are the things described here. No trannies, no no homos, no democrats, no perverts, no communists, no sodomites, no Muslims, Mormons, JWs or Buddhists, no mainstream media journalists, no gay pride, no abortion doctors, no politicians, no fake Christians in this heavenly city. God discriminates and He segregates. You come to God on His terms, which are the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a helpless baby born in a manger that we like to think about while forgetting everything else. Jesus Christ was Lord the day He was born. He was Lord when He hung on the cross. He was Lord when He got from the grave. He's Lord today. And you come to God through Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. You don't come any other way. And if you try, you're going to find yourself without. Who's without? Dogs. Now what are dogs? Does that mean there's no precious canines in the, in the city? What is a dog? Well, dog's kind of a, another way of describing something that we find in Deuteronomy 23. We're told exactly what a dog is referring to here. Turn to Deuteronomy 23. And there are people out there that are obsessed with me since this stuff happened in Montana. Like, I don't understand why. They must have wives that can't stand them, kids that can't stand them, because at Christmas time, all they know how to do is try to check up on everything old Jesse, the nobody preacher from North Carolina, has to say. And so he's really going to have fun with this one. He's going to have fun with this one. Deuteronomy 23. Hey, I didn't say it. God did. I'm not going to apologize for God's words. What does God say here to Israel? Verse 17, there shall be no whore of the daughters of Israel, nor a sodomite of the sons of Israel. God says no whores allowed, no homos allowed. Thou shalt not bring the hire of a whore or the price of a dog into the house of the Lord thy God for any vow. For even both these are abominations unto the Lord thy God. So God says no whores and no homos, no sodomites. Don't bring the price of a whore and don't bring the price of a dog. Out of God's own mouth to Israel, the dog is the sodomite. For without the New Jerusalem are dogs, sodomites. Not just physical sodomites and whores, but also spiritual sodomites and false teachers. Cowardly political leaders. Philippians and Isaiah speak of these. Worldly political leaders. Effeminate preachers. Those are the dogs that are without the city. According to God's word, homosexuals are dogs. And promiscuous women are whores. Oh, that's so terrible. I didn't say it. God did. Why would we apologize for that? And without His city... Our dogs, they aren't allowed in. God discriminates. We think we're so virtuous in this country because we just allow everything except for a street preacher to say what they want to say. And that makes us virtuous. No, it doesn't. It makes us an abomination in the eyes of God. And we're going to find one day that what we think is righteous is the opposite of what God says is righteous because God bans and He segregates. No dogs, no sodomites, no false teachers. Understand, guys, that there are sodomites and homosexuals and perverts in the flesh, but there are also sodomites and homosexuals and perverts in the spirit who pervert the word of God. False teachers are spiritual sodomites. Effeminate preachers that won't tell you the truth, that just go along to get along, are spiritual sodomites, according to God's word. Isaiah calls false teachers dumb dogs. They're without. Dogs, sorcerers. You might think of a guy, a wizard hat with a staff, a sorcerer. No, no, no. Understand that in 2022 America, there are sorcerers everywhere. We call them doctors, nurses, the Centers for Disease Control in America. Everywhere. They don't serve to help. They serve themselves. Guys, gone are the days in America when a child can automatically trust a police officer a nurse, a doctor, or a soldier. Those days are gone because we have ripped the moral fabric, the moral rug out from under our entire society. Whoremongers, all the sexual perversion in this country. We've raised a generation of kids in this nation who don't even have any idea that it's wrong. Their consciences are so seared that they have no idea that it's wrong to sleep or have sex with someone outside of the bounds of marriage. They never heard that. My generation knew it was wrong, did it anyway, but we knew it was wrong. This generation doesn't know it's wrong. They've never been told because of the spiritual sodomites in their churches don't have the guts to say it. They only preach part of God's truth. Whoremongers. Not allowed. Murderers. There's a lot of murderers in this country that don't go to jail. There's a lot of murders in this country that are mamas. Mommies that don't go to jail because they're poor victims they murdered their babies and we call them victims. There are doctors in this country that are murderers. They prescribe drugs. And they prescribe treatments that they know kill, but they do it anyway because they're slaves of the drug companies. They're murderers. Idolaters. No Laodicean church members in the new city. God segregates. Idolaters. Those of us who think we have everything we need Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. And I'll spew thee out of my mouth. That's an idolater in the church. The Bible says in Colossians that covetousness is idolatry. Just as lust is adultery, hatred is murder, covetousness is idolatry. And these things are without. God segregates. He discriminates they're not allowed in, so repent and believe the gospel and be cleansed of these things. Even the worst sodomite, the worst whore, the worst murderer, the worst idolater can be cleansed with, a new, with new clothing, a new, a new white robe. That doesn't need to be washed if they'll repent and believe the gospel. That's the good news. That word without is what we call the locative form of a verb that we see in the New Testament. It's a verb that is used to describe the casting out of demons. When we, talk, when we see about a, uh, read about a demon being cast out, that's the verb there in the original language. And right here, that word without is very strong. It means in no wise, like it says in chapter 21, 27, no way is that stuff coming in. That's kind of an interesting verb to cast out when we think about poor little precious Meek Jesus, meek and mild, never would say a cross word, just a little old baby in the manger. We don't like to think about the king that's coming, who wages war and righteousness. But this verb form of what we see here in verse 15, we can find in Mark chapter 5 verse 40, it sheds a little light on who Christ is and who He was in His ministry. It's another, what I call a milepost in Mark. What I've marked is mile marker 9 in the Gospel of Mark. This is when Jesus went at the beckoning of Jairus, whose daughter was sick. And when he came to the home of Jairus, (coughs) those that had gathered were mourning because the, the daughter had died. And Jesus came into the house. Jairus was a ruler of a synagogue. And he saw those that were weeping and wailing. And it says that when he went into them, he's like, what are you people crying for? This damsel's not dead. She's just sleeping. And it says they laughed him to scorn. So these sad people who were weeping suddenly started laughing. Laughed him to scorn. And when he had put them all out. I love that verb. That's the same <laughs> verb that's used when it's talked about casting out demons. Same locative form we see there in Revelation 22.15 when Jesus had put them all out it, he then took the, the father and the mother of the girl and they went went into where she was laying and he said Talithia arise and she, she got up he brought her back from the dead but it says before he went in there he put all these people that laughed at him out Jesus threw people out that wasn't a nice little, okay, guys, can you please go? He threw them out. Got those people out. If you don't repent and believe the gospel, God will throw you out. Without. Jesus threw people out. Quite the opposite of what we've been led to believe. The law of the first mention, if we were to go back and find the very first mention of the word without, like we see it here in the last chapter of the Bible, we can go back to the first chapter of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And it talks about the Spirit of God hovering on the face of the deep. You see, the earth in its very beginning was without form and void. That word in Hebrew, that phrase, tohu vabohu, without form and void. Without form is the first time we see the word without in our English Bible. And when we consider that, (coughs) we need to consider that God is the agent of order out of chaos. You know, evolution teaches that order comes from chaos by happenstance, by accident. That is foolishness. God is the author of order from chaos And He is the barrier between order and chaos. It's God who stood, the Spirit of God who stood as the barrier between order and chaos. And out of chaos, without form and void, He brought order. And He saw that everything was good. If He's the barrier between order and chaos, He also is the one who bans chaos from order. And He enforces that ban. And that's what we see here. God enforces the ban between order and chaos. And that's why without the city are dogs and false teachers and sodomites and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters. And yet, the same God who bans also grants access Ephesians 2.18, for through him that is Jesus, the babe born in a manger, we have access by one Spirit into the Father. That's good news for the whoremongers and the sodomites and the idolaters and the covetous and the liars. That's good news. That was good news for me when I was these things, if not with my hands in my heart by Jesus Christ is access. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me, Jesus said, and effectively throwing all of man's opinions and religions in a garbage can. And then He proved it when He got up from the grave. Not only is God the one who bans and also grants access, He's a furious storm. He has His way in the whirlwind and the clouds are the dust of His feet and yet He's also shelter from that storm. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. Nahum 1 verse 7. And he knoweth them that trust in him. Revelation twenty two fifteen 15 ought to be sobering. Not for just dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers, murderers and idolaters, but the last one listed there. Whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. America is full of those today who love and make lies. Not just on the left of the political aisle, but also on the right. Not just Democrats, but also Republicans. A lot of people in churches this morning love and make lies. That man who attacked us without provocation in Madison County, Montana, he loves lies and he loves to make them. That old wicked sheriff's department, they love to lie and make lies. Folks such as that have no access to God's kingdom. They better repent and believe the gospel. This brings us to really what I want to focus on today the next verse. In Revelation 22, 6 through 15, we have the Bible's very last exhortation. In Revelation 22, 16 and 17, we have the Bible's very last invitation. Today, I'm only going to look at verse 16. Verse 16, we don't really have a good word in English to describe it. If verse 17 is the invitation itself, which we will look at next time, and we'll go and look back at the Bible's first invitation. Verse 17 is the invitation itself. Verse 16 is what we would call in Spanish the invitador, or in French the inviter. We don't have a good word in English. We might say host. But it's the one who makes the invitation. It's the inviter. It's the invitador in Spanish. That's verse 16. We have the one who makes the invitation. No good single word in English to describe it. And then we have the invitation itself. Today, let's look at the invitador. For he's the one we celebrate this day. The invitador. Verse 16, guys, those are red letters. These are Jesus' words. Now, I believe the entire Bible is Jesus' words. and We don't necessarily need to elevate one over the other. They all are one. But we really ought to pay attention to this because most people think the red letters are only found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not true. You can find them in Acts chapter 1. You can find them in one of Paul's epistles when Jesus appeared to him and told him very specifically. And you find it here in Revelation. These are red letters. I, Jesus, the same one who was born in a manger have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. I, Jesus, this is Jesus speaking, have sent my angel to testify unto you. And guys, this is where you might get confused in a modern English translation. I can't stand hearing this excuse, and a lot of times this excuse for not reading that good old King James Bible is rooted in ignorance. And I'm not, you know, I understand. I used to think this way. Well, I don't understand all those these and thous. Well, if you understood what thee and thou meant versus you and ye, you might find that it's easier to understand the Scriptures because there's a fallacy with modern English that you don't see in the other languages of the world. I'm privileged to know and speak multiple languages and to be able to read some. And these other languages have these features. If I want to distinguish between you, one person, Brother Daniel, and you, everyone sitting here, the, I use different words or different endings to the word. So there's no doubt whether I'm talking to a single person or a whole room of people. In modern English, you could mean one person, two people, or everybody in this room. And the context is what we have to use to try to figure it out. Not so in that good old King James Bible. If you see a T word, thee or thou, thee is the subject, or I'm sorry, thou is the subject, thee is the object. The T words are singular. It refers the audience is one person. If you see a Y word, ye, subject, you, object, it's more than one person. It's plural. So right here, Jesus sent His angels not to testify to John. You is not John here. It's plural. It's to the saints, to the churches. This book wasn't to John. This is to the saints, to the churches, to us. You is plural. And that's where that good old King's English sheds light on what the Scriptures say in their original language, something that the modern English has lost the ability to do. I'd be ashamed to admit that the these and thous were too hard for me. If that's too hard for me to figure out, what else is too hard for me? Is it too hard for me to change a flat tire? Is it too hard for me to change all oil on my car? Is it too hard for me to pay my bill, my water bill? Is it too hard for me to, to, to live and survive if, God forbid, my internet gets cut off? I mean, man, the things we say are too hard for us, we ought to be ashamed. There's an interesting passage in Luke that highlights this you, ye, versus thee and thou. Turn to Luke 21. This is an important truth that we lose if we don't understand these things. In a modern English Bible, you wouldn't know, you wouldn't know who exactly Jesus was talking to. Luke 21, 32. This is right before Peter denies Christ... Wait a minute, that's not right. Luke uh, 22, 31 and 32. My, my notes are wrong. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you. There's a y word. Why word is plural. So who is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about Peter or is he talking about more than one person? He's talking about more than one person. It's plural. You. Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you, a group of people, more than one person as wheat. But I have prayed, Jesus says, for thee, one person, Simon, Peter, that thy faith, your faith, Peter, fail not. And when thou, you, Peter, art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So what's lost there is Jesus is saying, Satan wants all of you. He wants all of you disciples, all of the brethren. And he wants to sift you as wheat and destroy you. But Peter, I'm praying for you specifically, Jesus said. I'm praying for you specifically. And when you are converted, Peter wasn't converted at that point. He goes right on to deny Christ. When you're converted, I'm choosing you, Peter, to strengthen your brethren. God will often use a weak, struggling, failing man in a period of weakness to turn around and strengthen all his brethren. What an incredible picture that is of how God can use someone who has stumbled and fall, fallen. And we would lose that. It's the same here. In Revelation 22, Jesus says, I sent my angels, angel to testify unto you, all of you. This is for us, guys. This wasn't for John. It's for us. Why don't we pay any attention to it? Jesus is talking to us, all New Testament saints of all ages from John until now. I have sent mine angel to testify unto you, all of us. These things. What are these things? These things are Revelation chapter 1 through 22. Everything that's in this book was sent to us. These things in the churches. Could it be any more clear than that? Could it be any more plain? This book was given to the churches for us. These things. And yet it is the most neglected book in the New Testament In the churches even today. It's a shame. Daniel was given. Describing these things. For the nation of Israel. And he was told to seal it up to the end. John was given these same things. For the churches. And told not to seal it. And yet that's exactly what we've done. He that hath an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Seven times in Revelation 2 and 3. And yet we neglect it. Maybe if we paid more attention to those letters Jesus wrote to the churches, we wouldn't be in such a mess in this country today. Where suddenly, when Christmas falls on a Sunday in 2022, suddenly it's so important that we cancel services so that we can be with our families today. Those that have sat back and cared not as the families are destroyed in this country. And God forbid these preachers would ever say a word about abortion. Would ever exhort their flocks not to send their kids to public schools. Would ever say a cross word about any sin. They suddenly care about the family today. And they want you to spend time with your family. So that, and therefore cancel church. Now when I was a kid, church was never canceled on a Sunday. In fact, there was no question. If Christmas was on a Sunday, that's a good thing. You know what? What? What else wasn't canceled? If Christmas was on a Sunday, Christmas Eve candlelight service on a Saturday night wasn't canceled either. But now we don't. We'd be better just to cancel it for the Super Bowl than to cancel it and say it's because we want Christians to spend time with their family. I don't buy it. Don't give me that garbage. You don't care about the family. Because most of these preachers saying that today have sat back and watched our families destroyed in this culture and don't say a word about it. It's damnable. But we've neglected these things and that's why we're in this position where it's virtuous to not gather together and worship the Lord when Christmas falls on the Lord's Day. That's considered virtuous today. We have listened to these things. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. Who is this Jesus? We're not going to have lunch here today. You've got a nice, long, beautiful day to spend with your families this afternoon. So indulge me here for a moment. This is Christmas. Let's ask about this Jesus. Because this ties right into the birth narrative of Christ. Who is Jesus? I, Jesus, I, Jesus says, am the root of... And the offspring of David. That's talking about his first advent. The very thing we celebrate today. What we celebrate today is not a helpless little baby in a manger and then we leave him there. Because we're comfortable with that. We're just not comfortable with what comes after. What we celebrate today and should celebrate every day of the year. Is that the Jesus we serve is the root and offspring of David. His first advent. And, the last part of the verse, the bright morning star. That's talking about a second advent. Right there we have the first and the second advent spoken of as one. Jesus says, I am the root and offspring of David. What does that mean? The word root in Hebrew, sheresh. It's, the same, it's a word that appears in that famous chapter in the Old Testament that describes in detail the millennial kingdom of Christ. Isaiah chapter 11 where we learn about the sevenfold spirit of God that's possessed fully by Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. And we learn about life in the millennial kingdom. We're told that a root, a Shadesh of Jesse shall stand. A root of Jesse. A root of Jesse is also a root of David because Jesse was the father of David. A root of Jesse will one day stand. That word means the root, the bottom, the very lowest stratum, below, Underline. And then you have your famous millennial kingdom passage. The word root in the New Testament Greek, it's a word pronounced ritsa. I shouldn't pronounce Greek from the pulpit or Hebrew. An old preaching professor of mine used to say he was a good man, sound Teacher and theologian, he's with the Lord now. I should probably not do that. You won't remember it anyway. But we see this same word in the New Testament in the parable of the sower. The seed that fell on stony ground had no root, and therefore it withered away. Paul talks about the root, the promise made to Abraham in Romans 11. If the root is holy, the foundation, so are the branches when he warns Gentiles about being high-minded or heavy because of the Jews' rejection of their Messiah. And says that one day they'll be grafted back in because the root, the promise, the unalterable, unconditional promise made to Abraham is secure. It's the same word that Paul warns us about in 1 Timothy 6. For the love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say the love of money was the root of all evil. It certainly doesn't say the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, like modern Bibles say. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, the love of money may not have been the root of all evil in Old Testament times. It may not have been in the founding of this country, but it is today. And Paul, in the, pre, or in the previous two chapters, sets the context about what's happening or what's coming in the latter times. Guys, in the latter times, the love of money is the root of all evil. And it's the root of every single evil in this country today. Love of money. Love of money is what compelled those wicked thugs with a badge who knew the concept that we would just walk 5,000 miles and then just randomly attack some guy in the presence of my children. They knew that was ludicrous. But love of money compelled them to figure out a way to arrest these folks. Because ultimately, when someone gets arrested in this country, whether it's just or unjust, and pays a bail, and goes to jail, and spends a few nights buying stuff on their account, there are people who make money. Counties make money. And that money goes into the pockets of thugs with a badge. The love of money is the root of all evil. It is. That same word, root, that we see here. Jesus is the root of David. Just like the love of money is the root of all evil. Just like the promise to Abraham is the root of Israel and the church. Jesus is the root of David. What does this mean? Very simple. We are told in Psalm 110 verse 1. Psalm 110 is quoted at least six times in the New Testament. These passages are quoted not just by Jesus, but by Peter at Pentecost. At least six times in the New Testament. It is repeated what we are told here in Psalm 110, verse 1. I'm going to tell you this. What is said here in Psalm 110, verse 1, and I'm going to say it this Christmas morning, it ought to give the United Nations, it ought to give the U.S. government, it ought to give the Madison County, Montana Sheriff's Department a feeling of mortal terror. When we consider this, our wicked country ought to be in a state of mortal terror. Because all these wicked entities are one day going to lick the dust. Psalm 72. They're going to kiss the feet. Psalm 2. Of a military dictator. Who is a Zionist. A Zionist military dictator. Who rules on a throne in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. Psalm 2. What does Psalm 110.1 say? The Lord said unto my Lord. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And then it goes on to say that this Lord of David, who also is his son, this Messiah, verse 6, will judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. That ought to put these wicked entities that think they know everything and they want to get, take authority. Caesar wants authority in God's house. This ought to put them in a state of terror. Because one day... David's Lord is going to fill places with dead bodies. I used to have a bumper sticker on my RV as we traveled around the country preaching the gospel. Jesus Christ is coming back soon, and boy, is He angry! It's true. You read Revelation, Psalm 110.1, The Lord said unto my Lord, What does it mean that Jesus is the root of David? It means that He's David's Lord. David understood that the Messiah was his Lord. That's why Jesus questioned the Pharisees, who do you say the Messiah is? Well, he's David's son. Jesus said, well, how can he be David's son if David says he's his Lord? The fact is he's both David's Lord and his son because the Messiah is both God and man. What does it mean that Jesus Christ is the root of David? It means that Christ the Messiah is David's Lord and head from whom He had His being and by whom He was supported or sustained. Christ is the root of David. Jesus the Messiah is God. Baby Jesus in the manger was God in human flesh. David's Lord. And even David knew that. And yet... He's also the offspring of David. I, Jesus, am the root and the offspring of David. The Messiah was also David's descendant. It says in Romans chapter 1, verse 3 of the seed, Jesus Christ was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. He is the seed of David, as God promised to David. Legally, Via the line of Joseph, we see that genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And genetically, via the line of Mary, the virgin, who gave birth to Christ. And seen in the genealogy of Luke chapter 3. Now, back in 2016, here, I preached a five-part series on the advent of Christ. And in the third of those messages... I talked about days of small things. And in the fourth of that five-part series, I talked that the message was called Every Family Apart. If you want to go back and listen to those sometime, they're on our website, fpgm.org. I talk about some of the amazing details of those genealogies. There are things we overlook. And we really do see the hand of God doing exactly what He says He's going to do and those genealogical lines, so that when Christ came, He could be born of a virgin, and be David's Lord, and yet also be legally and genetically the offspring of David, and therefore have a claim to that throne. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, unstained by the tainted blood of Adam, and yet possessing both a legal and a genetic claim to the throne of David. The Messiah, God incarnate deity. When it, Jesus says, I am the root of David, He's saying, I'm 100% God. And when He says, I'm the offspring of David, He's saying, I'm 100% man. God and man, both David's root and his descendant. How appropriate is it is for us to consider these words of Jesus Himself In the last chapter of the Bible, on a day that we think of the birth narrative. There's just a few passages in the birth narratives that refer to Jesus and David. We're familiar with Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 1 and 2. But I thought it would be nice to go back and look at the places where David is mentioned in the birth narrative. Because we're going to see what is affirmed here affirmed there as well. And we often forget these elements, that when Jesus was born in a manger, God became a man. God became flesh. What the Mormon church denies, what the JWs deny, what all false teachers and false spirits hate, what Muslims hate, what rabbinic Judaism hates, the truth that is so repulsive to the devil himself, and to those who hate a man walking down a road with the cross, that God became a man. We used to print scriptures in Nepal. We gave them out by the thousands. We translated and pr- uh, printed books from the Bible. And we always put a title on them in Nepali. Parameswar le nimti monis bonabayo. God became a man for you. You see, in those Hindu mythologies that read like Disneyland stories, Gods in mythology often take on the form of men but never for men they do it for themselves to satisfy their own lust and pleasures it should be no surprise that man made mythologies record these things because we see that very thing happen in Genesis chapter 6 where sons of God angels come down and take on the form of men and sleep with women and giants are born that's where the demons come from we've talked about all that and they did it for their own lust and pleasures. But when God Almighty became a man, He did it for you. And so that's something we like to highlight. Brother Bishnu likes to highlight when we preach to Hindus and Buddhists. That what God, the Creator, did wasn't what your gods and mythologies, they do what they do to destroy you and to serve themselves. But God became a man for you. And that's what we see in the birth narrative. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. These are familiar passages. We read through these Wednesday night. I just want to look at where we see the connection of Jesus to David. The first time we see this is in Matthew 1 verse 20. After we're told, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. Joseph was meditating about what to do for his espoused fiancé was pregnant. And an angel came to him as he thought on these things. Verse 20... But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Ghost. That which is conceived of her would be the offspring of David. Just like Jesus says in Revelation 22. Joseph, thou son of David. Joseph was a direct descendant of David. Jesus, the Messiah was the offspring of David. But look what happens in verse 21. And he, the offspring of David, shall, and she, Mary, shall bring forth a son, the offspring of David, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Also the root of David. Only the root of David, God himself, could save people from their sins. So right here, Joseph is told... That the babe was both the offspring and the root of David. I love how Christian people make excuses for the vilest of sins in our culture today. Well, everybody sins. We all sin. Well, the angel told Joseph that Jesus would save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save us from our sins. We don't preach that anymore. We speak as if Jesus can't save us from our sins. You can't get a homosexual to change his ways. He's born that way. Jesus can't save him. He's a Christian too. That's an outright denial of the very birth of Christ that some of these folks will quote unquote celebrate today. It might be the only time they're in church this year. No, they might go on Easter too. (coughs) Jesus came to save us from our sins because He's the root of David and also His offspring. Because He was the root, He had the power to save us. Because He was the offspring, He could stand in our place. Luke 1.27, we, we see a reference to Jesus as the offspring of David. This is when the angel appears To Mary, Verse 27. Actually, let's look at verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel... This was the sixth month that Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent... This is the same angel that appeared to Daniel, by the way, and gave him all those prophecies there, Daniel. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Jesus, my friends, was the offspring of David. The offspring of David. Now go on down to verses 32 and 33. He, Jesus, shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, the Root of David. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit at thy right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, the Root of David. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, the offspring of David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, the offspring of David. And of his kingdom there shall be no end, the root of David. It's interesting that when Mary is told these things that are hard to conceive, in some ways much harder to conceive than what Zacharias was told earlier, in that chapter. Look at what she says in verse 38. She doesn't say, Lord, how can it be? I'm old. Like like Zacharias said, how can this be? And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. That's what we need to learn from Mary. She heard God, she believed Him just like Abraham. Didn't question it. Be it unto me according to thy word. What a powerful statement there. Immediate obedience. We talked about this out of Revelation 10, 8. Back in, on May third, 2015, the name of the message in this study was Immediate Obedience. That's what John did when he was told to take the book out of the angel's hand and eat it. Something sounding crazy. John immediately went and did it. That's how we ought to be. Be it unto me, Lord, according to thy word. <coughs> Luke 1, 67-79 is an interesting passage. It's really more of a prophecy of the second advent, but it comes from Zacharias' mouth. Now, Zacharias questioned God when the angel came and told him about the birth of John. And because he questioned God, God said, This is going to be a sign to you because you didn't believe me. You're not going to be able to speak. I'm going to make you dumb. And so, Zacharias lost his ability to speak. But as we continue to read and we see that Elizabeth gave birth, they wanted to find out, well, what do you want to name him? And the relatives and the friends were like, well, name him after his father, Zacharias. And she wanted to name him John. And they're like, well, nobody in your family's named this. Jews didn't name people that weren't in their family. And so they were like, well, let's ask his father. And Zacharias couldn't speak. And so he wrote down, his name is John. And the moment he confessed that on paper, his mouth opened. The moment he demonstrated his faith, his mouth opened. That's kind of an amazing thing there for us to consider. His mouth was opened immediately and his tongue loosed. And what's the first thing he did? He spake, verse 64, and praised God. And then we hear what he said. Verse 67, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He's not talking about John. He's not praising God for John. Somehow Zacharias and Elizabeth were connected to the house of David, but they were Levites. He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about what had been told to Mary. God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. A horn of salvation, the root of David. The house of David, the offspring of David. As He spake by the mouth of His holy prophets, which had been since the world began. Christmas morning is what had been foretold numerous times that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. The oath which He swore to our father Abraham that He would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear. What God did in sending Jesus Christ ought to compel us to serve Him without fear and yet we serve Him with fear. So much fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest. John would be the prophet of the highest. That is, the root of David. He'd be his prophet. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord, the offspring of David, to prepare his ways. To give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the dayspring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Amen. That word dayspring is important. I'm going to come back to it in just a moment. Look four. We see another reference to Christ. As the offspring of David. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Jesus was the offspring of David. But in verse 11, what the angels say to the shepherds Fear, for unto you, fear not, for unto you is born this day in the city of David the offspring of David, a Savior, the offspring of David, which is Christ the Lord, the root of David. What those shepherds were told is exactly what we're told there in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. 16. Christ the Messiah is the root and the offspring of David, a Savior and Christ the Lord. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand, David said, until I make thy enemies thy footstool. The world loves a little helpless baby in a manger, but that was no helpless baby. He was Christ the Lord. He was the root of David and yet his offspring. Who is this Jesus? Speaking to us, the church, in the last chapter of the Bible, He's the root and offspring of David. That alludes to His first advent, but He's also the bright and morning star. That alludes to his second advent. The very thing we read about here in Revelation 22. The very thing that Zacharias in his praise looked forward to as well. A horn of salvation. He is the bright and morning star. We see this term morning star already in Revelation. It was in the message given to the church at Thyatira. And this message to Thyatira tells us exactly what this title of Christ is referring to. He tells them, But that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. The unrepentant church. He's talking to the remnant. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he, that is the remnant, shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I, Christ, received of my Father. And I will give him the morning star. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. That title, morning star, morning star, is used of the Messiah in regard to his millennial reign, his coming physical, literal reign over the kings of this earth. As a military dictator. And his saints will rule and reign with him. His saints receive the morning star. He is the morning star. The millennial king. We see another term for him that is similar in 2 Peter 1.9. It's the day star. Christ is also called the day star. It's not the same exact word there. And Peter tells us what this title refers to. 2 Peter 1:19 We also, you know, Peter and John, James and John, they heard God testify from heaven that Christ was the Messiah. They heard it at the mount of transfiguration. But Peter said, "We have even a more sure word of testimony than that. We have a more sure word of prophecy. This book is more sure than even Peter's eyewitness testimony. <coughs> we have also a more sure word of prophecy, to ye do well that ye take heed. Exactly what Jesus is telling us in Revelation 22, 16, 17. What, the last exhortation of the Bible, the first part of that chapter. As unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day, dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. And then he goes on to say that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. We can trust trust his testimony. But we're we're, 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 uh, Christ is referred to here as a day star that arises in our hearts. The morning star references his future millennial reign. Day star is his role as our indwelling Savior who reigns inside the body of the believer in his heart. So that day star in our heart who lives and reigns within those of us who have repented and believed upon Christ will one day be the morning star that rules over the world in righteousness from the throne of David, both David's root and his offspring. And then there's another Term the day spring. This is more of a reference to when the sun starts to come up in the east. When you, you begin to see the day spring, you begin to see the light across the horizon. The day is springing forth. The day spring, which was spoken of by Zacharias, is a reference to the Messiah's birth. So when you hear morning star, his millennial reign; day star, his indwelling the heart of the believer; day spring, his birth. His first advent was the day spring. His second advent is the sun of righteousness which arises with healing in His wings. It's one. It's one morning. We think, oh, it's separated by all these many years, but not to God. A day in the eyes of the Lord is like a thousand years. It's the day spring to the dawn. When I think of that word dayspring that Zacharias uses here in Luke chapter 1, I think about a great prophecy that the wise men knew about. They knew about this prophecy And they knew what to look for. And they knew Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. They knew the time was coming. Daniel had been in Babylon and prophesied these things. But of all people who make this prophecy, it's a prophet who preached God's word and then went to hell because he didn't believe God's word. There are people that preach truth and by that truth they themselves are condemned because they don't believe it. And yet God's truth is preached by them and it affects people and brings them to Christ. Balaam is a classic example of that. A Bible preaching preacher who wasn't a Bible believing preacher and he went to hell. But he prophesies about the coming of Messiah. I shall see him but not now. I shall behold him but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob. His first coming. A star out of Jacob, the day spring. And a scepter shall arise out of Israel. His second coming, the morning star. And he shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. Christ is our morning star. He's our day star. And he's our day spring. And he's all of these things because he is who he says he is. The root and the offspring of David. Now, I want to end with this. This is a little bit of a sidestep from the Messiah to the anti-Messiah. We talked about blessed are those that do His commandments versus blessed are those that wash His robes. We're forced to consider something where the word morning star is concerned because Satan not only tries to usurp Christ's authority, he wants to usurp these very titles for himself. And He uses pawns who think they are doing us a great favor by giving us a translation we can more easily understand. He uses them to do His work. Turn to Isaiah 14, verse 12. In a great prophecy that describes not only Antichrist, but the one, the prince of Babylon, but the king of Babylon that indwells him. We are told... In verse 12, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? This word Lucifer here means light bearer. In Hebrew, the word is hayel. It means one who bears light. Lucifer is the Latin translation of light bearer. Which should be no surprise because the devil, we are told in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4, appears as an angel of light. So that word Lucifer is a Latin title that means light bearer. O Lucifer, son of the morning. This is talking about Satan. The evil one. The one behind not only the king and the prince of Tyre, but also behind the king and the prince of Babylon. We read about these in Ezek- this in Ezekiel too. Lucifer, son of the morning. Now guys, you've got to watch out for these modern bibles. You know what the NIV says here? How art thou fallen from heaven, O morning star? You know what the ESV says? How art thou fallen from heaven, O day star? Now do you think that's innocent? where the very titles reserved for the Messiah are given to the anti-Messiah? He's not the morning star, the millennial king. He's not the day star that arises in our hearts. He's Lucifer, an angel of light that's a great deceiver. Watch out. These changes, these changes that everybody in the American church thinks are so innocent giving Christ titles to Satan, in my view, are proof positive that there's a subtle spirit behind all these new Bibles. And it's an unclean spirit. You know what the greatest proof of all is? All of these translators, all of these guys that make a lot of money off these copyrighted Bibles. Even if what they say is true, well, we just want to make the Bible easier to understand. If the Bible's more easy to understand if it's easier to understand then more people will read it and more people will believe and we'll just have the gold revival in our country man they've been saying that for years we got so many different english bibles on the shelves you can pick and choose whatever you want to and yet this nation is farther from god and the church is weaker than it has ever been they have not accomplished their purposes so even if their motives weren't money related, even if their motives were pure, they have failed. Back when America had one English Bible that God blessed, the Bible of the Great Awakenings, the Bible that was smuggled in during the Civil War and used, even in the early revivals of, this, of the 20th century, men feared God. And there was a moral fabric and a moral underpinning in our country. Now all that's gone. There is no silent majority of moral people. Guess what? There never was. We have a silent majority of amoral, selfish cowards. And that's what it always was. But you've got to watch these Bibles. There's only one morning star. He's not the son of perdition that comes into the world to deceive many. He's not this idiot from the Ukraine who comes in there and demands more money from this country? He's not like that. The morning star is Jesus Christ, the root and offspring of David. Satan's an angel of light. And the ones, Satan's pawns, like that short guy from the Ukraine, at best appear as angels of light, but they are great deceivers. There's only one day star that arises in our hearts that's the Messiah. And there's only one dayspring born in a manger, born to die, buried and risen from the grave, and now sits at the right hand of God the Father. And that's the root and offspring of David. I, Jesus, who sent His angel to testify unto us these things. And guess what? To those who hold fast unto the end, The morning star will give us the morning star. Just as he told the remnant there at the church in Thyatira. So here we have the invitalor. The one who gives us our last invitation. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root, the Lord of David, and the offspring. David's son. 100% God, 100% man. Laid in swaddling clothes in that little manger. I'm the bright and morning star. Let that be what gives us joy to this morning. Not just what happened at the first advent, but what is guaranteed to happen. What the first advent guarantees. What the day spring guarantees. The rising of the sun. I want to end with one of the last verses in the Old Testament. The ending of the Old Testament is quite different than the very end of the New Testament. We're going to look at that. The last chapter of the Old Testament in Malachi, the Bible says, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven There's a day coming for this country that will burn as an oven. And all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up. That old wicked fake president in Washington who gave a little Christmas address yesterday wouldn't even mention the name of Jesus. Didn't even mention His name. Refused to mention His name. The day's coming that's going to burn him up. Probably sooner rather than later. And I'm not talking about a nuke from Vladimir Putin. I'm talking about the fire of God on this nation. What fell on Sodom. That day's coming if they won't repent. Sayeth the Lord of hosts that it shall neither leave them root nor branch. The very things guaranteed to the Messiah. The root and the branches won't leave them anything. But unto you, all of us, not one person, unto you that fear my name, God says, in the midst of all of this, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in His wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves in the stall. The Son of Righteousness That will arise is the morning star, the very one who speaks to us today in Revelation 22.16. The great invitador that gives us one last invitation in the Holy Bible. Next time we're going to look at verse 17. It's the invitation itself. And guess what? It's good news. And that invitation has a word in it. It goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. A word, the very first word that was twisted, changed, and misunderstood by man that came from God. The very first word of God twisted, just like we saw in some of these modern Bibles today. So we'll come back there next time. I pray you all have a blessed Christmas afternoon. Remember, it's not just the offspring of David, the baby in a manger, that we celebrate. It's the Lord of David. It's the root of David. It's the King that's coming. And that's not something we should just think about one day out of a year. It really ought to be something that compels us every single day of the year. Let's pray. Father, we praise You and we worship You this morning for the root and the offspring of David. Lord, You did exactly what Your Word said. You were going to do. David's son was also his Lord. Jesus Christ, born as a man, was also God in human flesh. And he accomplished what only 100% God and 100% man could accomplish. He paid the price for man's sins because as a man he was without sin. And yet he suffered the wrath of God, the eternal wrath of God against the sins of man in a moment of time and survived because he was God, 100% God. So we thank you for the God-man, God incarnate deity, the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And Lord, we ask that you would do what Zacharias declared, that you would raise up a horn of salvation to save us from our enemies, Lord. That you would hasten the day of your coming. That the day star and the day spring would arise as the morning star. And Lord, that you would come and deliver us from the wrath of wicked men and the devil. For the evil that this wicked nation of ours has become. That you would deliver your people Israel and wake them up to the truth of their Messiah. And fulfill your words and promises to them. And fulfill your words and promise to the church. That you would come for your bride. Come even today, O Lord. May we look for You to come in the clouds. We worship You. We praise You. And may our fellowship with each other and our families this day and into next week and to the end of this year be pleasing in Your sight, a sweet savor in dark days. Those were dark days in Israel when You were born, Lord Jesus. And yet even the poorest celebrated and rejoiced because you had raised up a horn of salvation. May we do the same and not fear men and fear wicked, evil politicians and thugs with badges and liars and false teachers. But may we fear God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.